Hey, I want to talk today about something that uh, it's not going to be easy, but if you'll just bear with me, I think it will bring hope and direction to you. But in this entire series on margin and creating space for what matters most in our life, if we thought that we were going to keep doing things the same old way and seeing different results, again, that's insanity. We are going to have to make changes. We're going to have to adjust the way we look at things. So let me start by posing a question to you today. Have you ever experienced a time, a place, a situation where somebody has taken something from you in a robbery, in theft, Maybe somebody broke in. Maybe somebody did something to you. We live in a day of passwords and encryption of messages and everything is protected. And the identity theft is out there where every two seconds somebody's identity is stole from them. And so we live in a day where everything is constantly compromised and we don't know what all of our stuff's out there on the interweb and uh, what is uh, uh, being compromised even as we're sitting in this room or being analyzed even as we're here. And so it's kind of a bit scary in this day and age of technology. But then I can remember just growing up and not even being there. All the only thing you had to worry about is somebody breaking in or taking something from you. I can remember a family member of ours experienced a, a, a break-in. And I can remember being there a few moments after the break-in had happened and the police were there and they were investigating it and the house, certain rooms were completely destroyed. Beds turned over, things ripped off the wall, uh, holes put in places to try to find money, jewelry, something along those lines of value. That's what the police were saying is that they were just, they were, they were educated thieves. They had stocked, they had case the place. They knew you were going to be gone. They knew you'd be gone for about this length of time as they were telling the family members this. And they just, they just came in and they just were looking for fast cash somewhere, somehow to get to it. When you go through that, I can remember it wasn't even my home. It wasn't even my stuff, but I can remember walking through the house and feeling very vulnerable, feeling almost stripped down. Like, golly, you weren't supposed to be in here, whoever you are. You weren't allowed in this space. And I tell you what's, what's bad is when, when someone else robs us. But what's sad is when we rob ourselves. It's bad when somebody else robs us, but it's really sad. And it may not even make sense to us, but when we rob ourselves. When we go through things, when we do things that, that we literally rob us of joy, rob us of contentment, rob us of, of, of sustainable living, a, a healthy marriage, a, a good home, a, a great career, or whatever it is. Now, all those things are how those, where we live out our life. But when we rob ourselves, we do a tremendous disservice to ourselves, obviously. We're talking about margin creating space for what matters most. And if you're going to take a topic and you're going to talk about margin and you're going to talk about space and making things a place for what matters most in our life, there's probably fewer things that I can talk about today that will cause more people more angst. So get ready for the angst. Uh, at the same time, it is probably one of the top one or two areas of life that we struggle with margin in. So just realize I'm going to get close to the home. I'm going to get close to the heart today. But this is just really where we're at. And it's where Solomon was at whenever he was writing. It's what Solomon struggled with himself. So you're in good company. Great King Solomon struggled with the same thing. I struggle with the same thing. And it's this marginless life that we live. And, and Richard Swinson, who has written a lot on this, in fact, if you want to Google his books and look them up, worth, worth grabbing a couple of them that they're out there. He said, the condition of modern day living 
devour margin. If you're homeless, we send you to the shelter. If you're penniless, we give you food stamps. If you're breathless, we connect you to oxygen. But if you're marginless, we give you one more thing to do. And that's really kind of how we live. We don't see this as that, as that much of a bad thing. As It's like you can handle more. We can push you more. We can take you more. We can ask more of you. And, and it's like at the same time, there is a breaking point that you can't go on. And financially, it's the same way. Margin in money is one of those areas that we just don't, as Americans, do very well. And I've already shared this multiple times in this series, but it just blows me away from just to think about this. Washington Post said this uh, in an article before starting this series I read that said that most Americans are within $400 of some appliance breaking in their home, something going awry in their life, uh, something happening with the car, that they're within $400 until they're going to have to dip into debt to pay for it. So basically, they have a margin in a life that's very expensive, in a world that's very expensive. They have a margin of $400. And all of a sudden, your transmission goes out in your car, and now you're in debt. So again, we come back to this topic. It's going to get uncomfortable. It's not going to be easy to talk about. But if I can quote from the great Dave Ramsey, if you want to live like no one else, you're going to have to live like no one else. You can't keep doing it the same old way. That if I want the peace in my heart, if I want that joy in my life, and I want to have margin in my finances, I can't keep doing what everyone else is doing. So we're going to be counter-cultural here, and let's just kind of press a- against this. But what happens with the money and the margin and, the, and, and in our culture that feeds it and breeds it and all that kind of stuff, we kind of live out what Warren Wiersbe, I think, points out, is that we make money a god. We make it almost divine. This is what Wiersbe said. He said, some people treat money as though it were a God. They love it. They make sacrifices for it. They may even sacrifice their family. They may even sacrifice a number of things, their character for it, and think that it can do anything. Their minds are filled with thoughts about it. Their lives are controlled by getting it and regarding it. And when they have it, they experience a great sense of security for a moment. I would add that. So again, we almost, and unbeknownst or unconsciously, raise, elevate, put money at such a high level in our life that we're literally making it a God. And if there's any life principle that you need to take home with you today, it's this one. Money makes a great servant, but a horrible master. Money makes a great servant. You put money to use for you for what is good and right and proper and just and honorable and what is pleasing to God. You will do well in life putting money to work for you. But if you ever put yourself into a financial situation to where you are now having to and you must and you're sacrificing more and more for the good of the family, at the same time you're ripping away from the values of the family, then there's something up, upside down. And it's ironic that we're in in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Because if you remember last week, what did we talk about? Making space for God. And it's ironic that the very next part of after making space for God and entering into God's presence and learning to listen to Him and learning to make Him a priority, because why? Why do we do that? Because God deserves our best and He deserves our first. 
If he's really God, he deserves our best and he deserves our first. But then right after that, and where we're going to be today in Ecclesiastes 5, verse 10 and following, is that we're going to talk about money. Because if there's anything that inserts itself into our life more often, more than anything else, almost that we think about it, somebody has said this, that we think about it between 80 and 85% of the waking hours of our life. Like, how's that? Were you thinking about buying it, making more of it, or dreaming that we had more of it? And what we would do if we had more of it? That literally becomes an all-consuming part of our life and it becomes that horrible master of our life. And we've got to remember what he says in, in the passages throughout the book uh, uh, of Ecclesiastes. In nearly every chapter, he uses this word vanity, which means emptiness, means void, means it's a puff of air. Literally, literally, a puff of air. It has a surface. It's like getting that Easter bunny, you know, you used to get, and you think it was a big old thing of chocolate, and you bite into it, and it's nothing but air on the inside. Remember how disappointed you were as a kid? I'm still wounded because of it. And so it's like that. So much of life is like biting into a little bit of chocolate and a whole lot of air. How is it that I can get real sustenance and meaning in my life. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to begin with the end in mind today. So I want to show you where we're going so you can keep the bullseye out there, so you can keep a target of where we're heading. All right, so keep this in line of sight is that we want to live a life rich of God's abiding joy. Okay? We'll live a life rich of God's abiding joy. And each one of those words is key, rich, because that's really where value is. That's really, that's really where wealth is measured in. Rich of God's abiding joy, because abiding means it's living with you. It's taking up residence in you. You don't just have it for a few fleeting moments while you get a dopamine high from something you just purchased online or you just purchased in a store. And I, remember, I'm the impulsive shopper in the family. I know what that dopamine drip feels like, and I love it. But the reality is, is it's a drip and it fades off and then I am hungry for more of it. But this is an abiding joy that reproduces itself, stays with us. You think, Mike, where are you getting all this? Go to verse 10. Go, excuse me, go to verse 20 of Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Again, putting the target out, where we're moving, where we're going to head, and then we're going to have to go into the dark side before we get there. Uh, verse 20 says, For he, not much... For, for he will not much remember the days of his life. Why won't, why won't I remember all the things of life? Because God keeps him occupied, abiding, taking up residence with joy in his heart. <clears throat> An abiding, rich joy in my heart? <laughs> Sign me up. Something that I'll never have to run out. Sign me up. I want the drip. That's where we're heading. We're going to have to go to the back side of this first. And I remember I was talking about density. I remember I talked about, about the chocolate egg and all, all the chocolate bunny and all that kind of stuff. The joy that I speak of is not, is not sparse. It's dense. Because Peter talks about it in his writings in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8. And he's talking about people who are in a relationship with Jesus. And so if you don't have that relationship with Jesus, it, not, no reorganizing your 401ks today is going to fix this. No getting out of debt is going to fix this. If we don't have Jesus as, 
as the Lord and Savior of our life, starting there, then fixing it on the backside, then none of this matters. Because look what he says here. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not, uh, do not now see him, you believe in him. Notice the faith. You haven't seen him. You don't see him. You still can't see him or touch him, but you're still believing. You're still believing in him. Rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with, not empty, not hollow, not shallow, not sparse, filled with glory. And that word glory, I know it's a very christian knees kind of word, but it literally means density. The God of the universe is a very dense, full, flavorful, you cannot find a bit of air in God. You ever bite into that dessert. You ever bite into that food and it's so full of flavor from the top to the bottom. That's the density. That's the glory. That's the fullness of God's inexpressible joy in us. That's where we're heading. But let me get there first. Okay. We got to get there. We got to get rid of the robbers out of our life because what happens is we rob ourselves. This is not somebody coming into our house, breaking in, taking our junk. All right. Or going through our junk. This is where we rob ourselves. One way is contentment. Because there's this something inside of us that we say that we can pursue more. Okay? We can pursue more. Let's look at the passage here. Let's read it in its entirety so we get the context of it. Um, Verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth his income. This also is vanity. Again, that's that sparse, that that non-dense element of life, that puff of air. When goods increase, they increase. Who eat them and what advantage do they have the owner? But to see them with his eyes, sweet is the sleep of the laborer. Whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich is not... Let does not let him sleep. Verse 13. There is a grievous evil. Now, before I read the grievous evil, I want you to think about the most grievous evils that you can think of. Okay, make your own little mental list of them. I'm going to come back and ask you for them in a moment. That I have been under the sun, that I've seen under the sun. Riches that are kept by their own owner to his hurt. Those riches that are lost in bad venture. And he and his father's son, so basically he tells him what happens to the money, and we're not going to have time to break all this down, his father and his son, but he has nothing in his hand. He came from his mother's womb, and so shall he go again. Naked he came into the world, and, 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 and shall take nothing out for his toil. I've told my kids that, I, naked you came in, I can take you out in the same way. You know, you've told your kids the same thing. Uh, basically, you're quoting the Bible to him, so that's a good thing. Uh, this also is a grievous evil. So this is the second time he says a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is it? Is there to him who toils for the wind? Again, just chasing the wind, just keep working for the wind. Because moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation, in sickness and anger. Boy, that is just good positive thoughts. Behold, get your eyes off that and let's look. He turns the page as Solomon does so often in his writings. He gives what the world's giving us. But then he turns around and he says, hey, look at this. This is the truth. 
Behold, I have seen. I have seen to be good. I've seen what, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and to drink and to find enjoyment in all the toil in which you, your toils under the sun. The few days of your life, what God has given him. Circle that big, bold, and plain if you have a, a Bible. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given. Circle that phrase. Who gave it? God gave it. God has given wealth, possessions, power to enjoy them and to accept his lot to and rejoice in his toil. This is a gift from God. Three times in three verses. Gift from God. Given by God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Let's talk about robberies. We go through robberies in our culture on a regular basis. Jot them down real quickly. Number one is contentment. Because there is something in us that we've got to get more. So we pursue more. So we get more. And only to find out that we need to have more to get the dopamine drip again. More stuff, more, more, more homes, more cars, more trips, more money, more, more, more. There's never an end to the more. It it gives us more of a headache as well. It gives us more responsibility. We have to pay more taxes, but that's okay because I want more. So again, you see this maddening pursuit that happens in our world. A Roman proverb says it like this. Money is like seawater. The more you get, the more thirsty you are. That's something to think about. Think about King Solomon. He's he's $1.2 billion a year income. If he filled out his tax returns and was willing to let the public see them. um, Sorry, you're supposed to laugh at that part. uh, And was willing to let the people see them. And so uh, you would see that he made $1.2 billion in a year. We read it a few weeks ago, so I don't have time to go back to that. In fact, it was so much so he lived such an extravagant life that he didn't have a lazy boy. He didn't have a futon that he sat on. He had a golden throne. Just just to get a glimpse of the wealth and the way and the extravagance of his life and the way he lived his life, let's just read about this lazy boy that he sat on. He says in 1 Kings 10, 18 and 19, it says, The king also made great ivory throne, overlaid it with the finest of gold, the throne had six steps, so he wanted to be high so everyone could see him. He could see them. He was very noticeable, very proud, very high position. And the throne had a round top. So don't think of it as a throne, as a chair with arm arms. Think of it as a great big couch with cushions and throw pillows. And as he's sitting on top of this big round top, he each side of it, there was a seat of the armrest, had two lions standing beside the armrest. So this is this great big throne of gold and ivory. And you can just imagine him sitting on this throne of gold and ivory, being fed grapes from his own vineyard, being fanned by his servants. And what's he sitting there thinking? How much more can I get? How much more can I earn? How much more will it get me? Maybe he was writing this verse, verse 10, right here. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. 
nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. This is his Jerry Maguire moment when he realizes that, gosh, man, I've got it all. (laughs) I've made so much money, but I'm still not there. There's got to be more. There's got to be more, but here's what he's learning in this process, this, this growth moment, this epiphany that he's going through. More doesn't always equal having more. More sometimes equals having less. That actually, maybe if I had less, I will appreciate more of what I have. But more is is a mirage. More is never enough. More will never get there. And I have to think that maybe he's thinking back to what Daddy David said one day. In Psalm 37, verse 16, it is better to be godly and have little than to be evil and rich. Now, I read all the time. If you're my admin, Anya, I think you're in the room today. You get emails from me at all manners, the hours of things that I'm reading. I'm saying, file this there, file it there, file it there. All that kind of stuff. Because uh, I want to be able to recall it and bring it back up and share it with you guys in, in time. I recorded this sometime. I have no clue who to give credit for it. So I'm taking the credit for it. You can say Mike McDaniel said, okay? Because I think it's pretty wise. So I surely have said it. Listen to this. When I spend less, I'm able to enjoy more of what I have. When I work less, I'm able to enjoy more of those around me. When I do less, I'm able to live more. More doesn't always equal more. Less sometimes equals more. Think about it. It robs us of contentment. It robs us of relationships because what happens is we get more friends, if you will. Now, this won't take long because I think uh, you, you, you get it. I mean, you, you've heard the stories of the drug friends. The drug friends come around when there's drugs. There's free drugs. Hey, I got some. Hey, there's a party at so-and-so's house. Whenever the drugs are gone, the party's over. They're gone. You know who your friends are when your drugs aren't there, okay? And they're still there. When the money's gone and the money's all run out, do you still have friends? Have some other people knocking on your door? People wanting to hang out with you? Your 2 a.m. friends? I was talking to somebody who was in our church a number of years back. He was an officer in a company. Call it Big Blue. I'll let you figure out who it is. Um, and I was talking to them about their one another brothers. I said, do you have one another brothers? And he said, no. <laughs> he said, I can't trust anybody. He said, Because if I open up, if I'm real, if I'm raw, I never know when it's going to be used against me. I never know when somebody's going to want to be my friend for what I can give them. See, what happens in this world is when we have, all of a sudden, people want to have what we have. Take my word for it. Take take Solomon's word for it. Verse 11. He said this, I like the way he said it too. He said, when goods increase, they increase. Who's they? Whoever they are. They just kind of come around. One, one commentator put it like this. When goods increase, leeches increase. You, 
just think about it and you'll figure it out. You'll have more friends whenever you're rich. Number three, rest will be robbed from you. Why? Because you have more demands on your life. There's more things required of you. You own it, then it owns you. If you haven't figured that out. It's an incredible thing. The more we own, the more we have to take care of, the more responsibility we have. And now notice what he says in verse 12. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer. Just a common laborer, just one who's going to punch the clock and go in, go out and go home. And again, I know that their income may be different than your income, but they get to walk away. And I know you have to take it, you have to balance all this out, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Because he's got so much on his plate. He's got so many things to manage, so many things to consume him. Richard Swinson, if I can go back to him again, he said, without margin, both rest and contemplation are but theoretical concepts, unaffordable and unrealistic. Those of you who were here last week who talked about creating space for God and giving him our first and giving him our best and how that needs to be in every area and zone of our life, giving him our first, giving him our best. Some of y'all were like checking out already. You just understand, Mike, that's theoretical concepts. That's not realistic. You don't know the demands on my life. It's unaffordable. I need that time to make more money. Listen. If you don't have margin for God, you're building your own castle of cards and it's only a matter of time before the right wind blows and it all falls and you'll be exhausted through it all. I wonder if it's, if it's because of, of all of our wealth and our culture that robs us of the ability to feed the spirit, the soul of who we are. Charles Handy, in his book, Hungry, The Hungry Spirit. Now, that right there should make us take notice. The Hungry Spirit. He calls this age that we live in the age of unreason. Because what, what he was going to talk about here is he's going to talk about a bunch of things that don't make sense. We're living in this great wealth and this great education, this great accomplishment, but yet what are the indicators that have indicated that we have advanced? But he's saying actually what it indicates is that our souls, our spirits are more hungry today. And I go, I go back to last week's message. We don't have silence and solitude and scripture in our life. We don't have time to give God first and foremost. Here's what he found in his study and he published in his book. 41% of working adults feel used up at the end of the day used up. 69% would like to live a more relaxed life. Parents spend 40% less time with their children than we did 30 years ago. I know that things have changed. We're not on the farm anymore. I know that we, we've, we've advanced and we've got educational institutions to take care of them and, and we've got daycares and we, we've got quality programs and, and, and after school programs and traveling teams and, and we call that family today and I wonder sometimes if we're literally robbing the family in the midst of our wealth. This is pretty sad too. Per capita consumption, what we consume in the last 20 years has risen 45% while the quality of life measured by the index of social health has decreased 51%. So we're consuming more, but we 
have quality of life that's decreased. Only 21% of young people to, today now think that they can achieve the good life. Whatever the good life is, they, only four, 21% compared to 41% 20 years ago. Again, we've advanced. We're all, no, no, test me if I'm wrong. You're probably making more money today than you've ever made in your life. Think about it. Maybe not. Maybe not for everyone. But I'm going to say 75% in this room are making more money today than you've ever made in your life. Are you happier? Do you have more margin? More room for God? More room for what matters most? See, wealth has a way of robbing us of rest, peace, and serenity. So let's not rob ourselves. Generosity is another one. We become more selfish. This is where he talked about this grievous evil. What are the grievous evil things that you think out there? When I think of grievous evils of our day and age, I think of all of the mass shootings. You realize since January of this year, just last month, there's been 25 mass shootings in America. That is a grievous evil that's going on. In fact, if you only look at it from date to date, the first mass shooting, which is two or three people being shot in one time, that's the definition of a mass shooting, two or three people being shot at one time, maybe killed, maybe not, maybe just injured. The first one happened on January 19th. The last one happened Friday. In less than a month, most of those, in fact, all of those have happened in less than a month. That is a grievous evil. Crime, sex crimes. It's happening in the church. It's happening outside the church. It's happening in the job. It's happening in the schools. It's happening in so many places that are supposed to be safe places. It's a grievous evil. The racial hatred, blacks on whites, whites on blacks, El Salvadorians, Mexicans, Mexicans and Hondurans. You put whatever race, whatever ethnicity in the room, that's a grievous evil whenever we cannot love one another. But I don't think anybody, I know I wouldn't have put hoarding money on my list of grievous evils, but yet Solomon two times in one passage said this is a grievous evil. A grievous evil, a sad, painful, sickening feeling. It's the Hebrew word halal, and it means to be sick at your stomach. This makes me sick at my stomach, Solomon said. Now here's what makes him sick at his stomach. Verse 13, there is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. What is it, O Solomon, wise one? Riches were kept by their own owner to his hurt. Basically, basically saying this, that I'm going to keep all that I can. It's all for me. I'm going to do with it what I want. And they just become a dam. I'm going to get all I can, can all I get and set on the can. It's all for me. Living for self. Instead of seeing the wealth, the riches, the job, the prosperity that God gives us as a conduit through us. How could God use what we have? Lori and I have been committed This is what we've been committed since before we were married to consistent budgeted generosity to the organizations that we believe in the most that makes the greatest life change. And for years, I would say 28 years of our marriage, I would say 20 years of our marriage, we have put 10% to the church that we're a part of and 10% into our savings. We tithe to ourselves, we tithe to God, and we live on the rest. Recently, we just, um, we just wrote our estate 
or Will. We both became honorary members of AARP this year. Thank you so much. Now, I'll tell you her age, but I'll tell you mine, okay? I'll let you figure the rest out. Um, makes you think about life, death, things like that. Well, one of the things we did was we actually made sure that even in our state, however little or much it may be, 10% of it's going to go to the kingdom work of God. Because here's what I would love to see. Let's say, let's say I live to 94 like my grandmother lived. And let's say that whatever amount is left at the end of my life, let's say that when I die, let's say at 94, what if the giving of my life and our life together goes to we're 100? You see what it just did? I just extended the impact of my life even when I'm gone. How it's even going further. What would it mean if the ripple effect of your life lived on after you? See, there's new math and old math. You need to pay attention to the new math. The new math says, or excuse me, the old math says that, uh, that I add and, and, and the world takes away. You know, I take it on, and, but what happens is the world takes it away. And that's exactly what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6. But the new math says this, I subtract, I give, and God adds. I know it's an odd, uh, it's an odd math, but just listen to it. Because in Proverbs, Solomon said this, one gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds, keeps it to himself, becomes the dam, becomes what he says in verse 12, and only suffers from want. He only ends up finding that he never has enough. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched. But this is not just a proverb in the, in the Old Testament. This is what Jesus lived out. He says, given it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over into your lap for the measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. So here's, here's, the, here's the net net of this. You can give 10%, 15%, 20%. You can give 1%. You can give zero. But here's what I know. If I believe the scriptures, the measure I give will be the measure God gives to me. Do I want a cup or do I want a teaspoon? I got to measure out my giving accordingly. Now, guess, this is not about giving. This is about not being robbing or robbing ourselves of the joy that can be ours when we learn the beauty of giving. People spend about 20 bucks a, a week on Starbucks coffee. I want to give you a Starbucks challenge. What if you matched whatever you spent at Starbucks? And gave gen- if Grace Point's not your church, I'm not asking for it, okay? But you find a meaningful, life-changing organization out there that you believe in, and give it to it. If it's Grace Point, great. If it's not, give it to them. Learn that heart of generosity where you become a flower of blessing instead of a dam of blessing, and watch what God does. Number five, and we finish, and that's balance. Wealth will rob us of balance. We become owners when we should be managers. Don't miss this part. This is worth everything right here. Because what what Solomon does is he he kind of turns the table. He says, behold, now listen up. Now you heard everything before. How you're going to have more friends. 
How you're going to be hungry constantly for constant more money, more money, more money. How you're never going to be content. Here, let me tell you how. Get balance back in your life. Where you become a manager of blessings instead of the owner of them. I pointed it out. I don't have time to go back and reread it. I pointed it out to you. Hopefully you circled it and, and noticed how many times that God has given. That it's a gift of God. That God gives just go back and do your own study this week in verse 18 to verse 20. Just three verses, three times he tells us prior to that, in those verses that we read, he never mentions God. So here's the, here's the equation. God's a part of my finances. God's not a part of my finances. If God's not a part of my finances, everything that I just talked about is going to be true of our life. It's going to rob us of contentment. It's going to rob us of relationships. It's going to rob us of rest. We're going to be constantly like that. God becomes a part of my relationship, part of my money, becomes a part of my financial planning. What happens? Four ways we get level set with God whenever that happens is, number one, we get to enjoy life. Enjoy life. Verse 18. Behold, what I have seen is good and fitting to eat and to drink and to find enjoyment. Now it goes on. For the few days of this life. There's only, I don't know how you're, I may be 94. I may not make it another year, but I get to enjoy life. God actually builds a system in where I get to enjoy life. In fact, this eat, drink, and find enjoyment, he mentions it in chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 5, chapter 8. This is a common theme. He wants us to enjoy life. Enjoy your stuff, number two, but seek joy. Don't seek joy from your stuff. Notice that he mentions it's a reward. Verse 19, everyone to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them. I get to enjoy the things that of life. I get to experience joy. When God gives me, allows me to manage a $100 bill, I get to manage it. It's not my $100 bill. It's his $100 bill. He gave it to me. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, God richly gives everything for enjoyment, for our enjoyment. Number three, he's level setting things. When God becomes a part of our equation, we become managers of the wealth instead of the owners of it. We enjoy your work. Yeah, I know it. That's bizarre. It'll be a miracle of miracles. But you'll actually get up and say, hey, God, you called me to be a banker. You called me to be a teacher. You called me to be a lawyer. You called me to be a physician. You called me wherever I am. I get to enjoy what I'm doing because this is something that you called me. I get to impact people's lives. Verse 19, everyone to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and to rejoice in his toil. Whatever it is, if you're a stay-at-home mom or dad, enjoy that toil for the season that you are in. He's going to call our jobs, our toils, gifts from God in Ecclesiastes 2, verse 24, chapter 3, verse 12 to 13, and, cha- and verse 
22, multiple times, our work should be considered a gift from God. Colossians chapter 3, verse 23, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as if working for the Lord. What if Big Blue wasn't signing your paycheck and God was signing your paycheck as you worked for him? Lastly, and I'm done, enjoy your God in the present. It's not, I'm going to get to joy one of these days. I'm going to be happy when I get there. No, no, no. Remember what we started with, the target at the beginning? Is we get to live a life of rich, abiding joy. Verse 20, I want to read it out of the New Living Translation. God keeps such people so busy enjoying life that they take no time to brood over the past. We don't get caught up in the past because we're enjoying the present of God's work in us. Let me go back to that story of that family member whose house was broken, ransacked, disheveled, and all that kind of stuff. They actually caught the people. Not long, in fact, maybe minutes later. They had cased the place. They knew when they were going to be gone. It was going to be gone for an extended time. The thieves go in. They do their, they do their damage. They, they leave with what little they could find. And whenever the story kind of unpacks and unfolds about how exactly they caught the people, it was interesting. As the thieves were going through the house, they came across this remote control. And it was a panic button. And they kept going around through the house thinking a picture's going to pull back, something's going to open, the safe's going to pop open, and they kept just pushing the panic button. The, the alarm service was calling the house. They weren't answering it, obviously. They just kept pushing the panic button. Well, okay, now 911's called, and all the cops show up. They're gone, but they catch him at the end of the street. I think about, we're pushing the panic button because we're robbing ourselves. And some of y'all are here today in this series of messages called Margin because you're pushing the panic button. It's like, man, where can I find that joy? Where can I find it? Is it behind this wall? Is it in this room? Is it on this job, in this relationship? I promise you, that joy that's unspeakable and full of glory comes in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You got to start there. Get there and let God start building your life, your finances around Him. You manage it. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that in this place, everyone would take the time and space right now to hear your voice. They may be pushing the panic button. Where is the joy? Where are the things I need more? And what they need is you. Would you help them right now where they're at, Lord, cry out to you and say, Jesus, I give myself to following you. Lord, it would be beautiful in this room on March 10th because of what happens on February 17th that on March 10th, there would be men and women and students and children that would declare their faith in baptism for you 
because of what you started in their life today. Lord, do your work in this place. Bring the rich, abiding joy that only comes through you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand and worship with